Well, we are today excited because we are doing something called Hot Seat Sunday. I'm already sitting on a seat. I'm going to invite James to come sit on a seat. So this is, again, probably the second time in this service, and maybe ever. Thank you, Sarah. That um, we are going to answer your texted-in questions, which means we're inviting you to get out your phones and to text in a question. Um, We simply are doing this because many Sundays um, we set the agenda. We say, hey, um, we're going to talk about this. So for the last number of weeks, we've been talking and walking through the book of 1 Timothy. Um, Next week, we're going to begin a series called Vocation. Uh, The tagline of that is God's work and yours. We want to talk about how our faith and life intersect and how God created us to work. Some of you might be going, what do you mean? God created me to live. Yeah, he did, but he also created you to work. Notice Adam and Eve are given a project. Uh, Go harness the raw materials of the planet and make something beautiful, essentially, is what he's saying. Uh, If you can't sit around all day, I mean, you'd get a bit bored. So God has called us to do things. So we're going to be talking about the intersection of faith and work over the next uh, seven weeks. Uh, James is going to kick us off next week with that. But today we want to give you an opportunity for us to answer a few of your questions. So... These can be anything. We can't say that we're going to get to them all. We also recognize that the time is somewhat limited. Do you have a number? There it is. There's the number. Um, After the service, if you keep texting this number, can't promise anyone will respond. It's Uh, your number. It's my number. You have to respond. (laughs) Well, if if you're friends with me already and we're texting, you know that I'm not oftentimes the best responder. Scott Burton? Yeah. So I'll try... I'll, I'll try to respond um, eventually, and if we get far too many questions and we only get to a few today, then we'll try our best to find other ways to answer them. But really, anything is on, you can ask anything, we can't promise we'll be able to answer everything fully, but you also have to understand that we only have a couple minutes with each question, so be mindful of that as you're texting your question. Some of your questions might also be found better in a one-on-one conversation, um, but We're going to try to get to as many as we can today. Mm -hmm. So, whenever we have a question. About them Jays. Yeah. (laughs) Well, one question uh, we could start, well, until they have one. Uh, One question that was texted to me this week, uh, Matt, and I'll I'll throw it out to you. It was about baptism. Uh, And so one of the questions came in was this whole idea of um, sprinkling or pouring, uh, is there any uh, biblical basis? Like we, we practice uh, immersion, like the full dunking uh, here as uh, part of Church of the City. For a number of reasons, uh, it represents, we believe, the best picture of the, the life, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus. We, we, um, we practice it as more of it's what the word normally uh, means. Baptizo means to submerge or to dunk. Um, but is there any uh, scriptural basis for uh, the word to mean anything else? And so we went to a conference, so I thought that was a question I'd throw out to you, and, and then we'll start as we talk about baptism and move into that week. So, Yeah, different denominations practice different things. Uh, we practice, we'll, we'll, we'll start with the baptism one, we'll get to garden angels in a second. Um, Baptism uh, is practiced in different denominations. The word baptizo actually means immerse. It means to soak. So 
when we also view baptismal examples in the scriptures of immersion or what it's understood to be, we see that all the examples are generally a full immersion or someone being completely soaked. Uh, there are other tra- uh, traditions, um, and generally what most people understand is what's called paleo-baptism, which is an infant baptism. We would say that there's a little bit of a difference in the terms there. That, that's not fully immersion, it's more of a sprinkling. Uh, sometimes that then follows out of uh, Roman Catholic background, but we actually see no examples within the scriptures of this being a normative practice, nor something that we're instructed to do. Um, It's more of an act that parents can do. Some actually within the Catholic Church, there's a stream that believes that this act saves their children, uh, which we would say that's not true. We are simply saved by grace alone. And so we practice adult baptism because the scriptures also also encourage us to practice adult baptism. There are streams of uh, Mennonite tradition where adults who declare their faith in Jesus are poured. So they wouldn't be fully dunked in water, but would be poured. Uh, we would say that that is not the way that we practice, um, but it is certainly, it serves the function of somebody desiring who follows Jesus to make a confession of faith. Uh, within our denomination at right now, as part of the Fellowship Baptist, uh, you will, are not permitted to be a member of the church unless you have been fully immersed as an adult making a decision of faith. Um, it's actually a bit of a debate right now within our denomination. Certain churches are saying, let's stick with it. Other churches are saying, would it be okay if we allowed people into membership who had an adult baptism by a different mode than immersion? Um, and the fellowship is discussing that right now. So it's going to be a three-year-long discussion, uh, which kind of leaves us in a little bit of limbo. These things never move along quickly. They never move along quickly. Okay. So um, we would suggest that... Um, we would encourage and practice adult baptism. If you have had an infant expression, we would say that was not a full understanding of what baptism is. Uh, Generally, in those denominations, you also practice an adult confession of faith. Uh, We would say, hey, uh, to identify with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, this is the power of what baptism is. Uh, I was baptized as 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 a teenager. Other people here have experienced baptism. We would say, you're overdue. Get dunked. Because it expresses to the people that are in your community, I'm a follower of Jesus. It shows the obedience. As Jesus himself was baptized uh, as an adult, he also did that. And so it's a step of faith and obedience to God. And your first way of saying to your community, I'm all for Jesus. I identify with his life, death, and resurrection. Okay. I saw a question about guardian angels. Is that one still on the... Do we have guardian angels? Okay. Let's talk about angels and demons for a second. Uh, one of the uh, clear pictures of Scripture is that uh, there is a, a spiritual uh, dimension outside of this world that we, uh, it's not outside completely, but uh, we don't see uh, angels uh, among us normally uh, as a normal practice. But it is clearly taught in Scripture that there are angels and they are uh, God's servants and uh, they've been uh, created, they're created beings. Uh, there's also demons who are fallen angels who uh, were at one point in time led by Satan in a rebellion. Uh, Satan led a rebellion of these uh, of these angels who were created in a a, a will to become like God. That is uh, that was Satan's desire, and that there are uh, d- the demonic realm of fallen angels who are seeking to f- um, to fight against God's plan in all, in all cases. Now, the, the normal idea around guardian angels is that each person has been, is sort of given an angel and uh, is given a person, an angel that's looking 
out for you. That's, I, I don't know if that's entirely the question, but that is often talked about when you think about a guardian angel. It's sort of you have a guardian angel. And I, I wouldn't say that that's, the, um, that's the, the teaching of Scripture, that there are angels that are uh, taking care of uh, churches, that are uh, protecting, and we pray for protection, and God uses angels. But there's no sense in Scripture that you have a guardian angel, that you have the one person that is looking after you. It's more of a um, that there are both uh, forces uh, to, in battle and uh, that, the, that God's uh, army will win in the end, but that we, will, um, uh, we have these angels that are sort of uh, fighting on our, our behalf and protecting us. Um, yeah, to assume that you'd need a guardian angel would mean that God can't protect you, right? That he needs help. And the scriptures teach that we have God. So why do you need an extra angel? Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I, if we didn't answer that one uh, to your liking, uh, you can text that one in. I think, I think it's a lovely idea. You know, I've got Casper or whatever, and you want to call him, but uh, it, it, there's no evidence in the scriptures of a person having a direct allegiance or an angel having direct allegiance to a human being. Or that the, some people have thought it's like a, a family member passing away. Mm-hmm. that they in some way become their guardian angel. That's, uh, that's in, in no place in Scripture is, is uh, taught. Maybe if you, if, you, if you bring it to Scripture, it seems like uh, that's not... Angels are created beings distinct from human beings. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, so... Why not? Here's a question for, our, for the recording. Uh, when someone is saved, is it possible for them to walk away from their relationship with Jesus and lose their salvation? Eternal security. I uh, believe that the scriptures teach that there is nothing that you could have ever done to have earned your salvation in the first place. So how could you um, lose it? So if there is nothing within you to, to, to earn it, or to gain it for yourself, how do you then go and say, well, I, I don't want it anymore? Amen. Uh, that would be my perspective. We read a lot in the scriptures. This, it talks a little bit, it gets into a little of the conversation around uh, predestination and free will. I believe the scriptures teach that we are adopted by God before the foundation of the world, Ephesians. We could just read through Ephesians 1 and 2, and I think this question would be answered. People will then ask, well, what about someone who shows a faith and then distance themselves from it? Parents with wandering kids right now. Mm-hmm. Does that child any less your child when they're in a season of wandering? No. Those are your kid. Parents, you take your kids to the airport. You have one child that's a little bit more wanderer than others, and they wander off? Is that child, as they're wandering, any less yours? No, of course not. You're an adopted child of the Most High God. And you're in a parent-child relationship. Uh, some would, there's also parts of the scriptures that talk about folks uh, distancing themselves from the faith. But the proper hermeneutic on that is that that person never had a saving relationship with Jesus in the first place. I think that's where we need to go as well, is that the scriptures teach that if the question is asked, like, all, the, all with this grace stuff, does that mean I can continue sinning? And the scriptures over and over again say, no, you won't sin if you truly understand the nature of grace. 
Like, if I understand the grace that I have received from Jesus, why would I want to go and continue sinning? It would call into question the nature of my salvation in the first place. So, if we're to go along that line, then maybe the person was someone who wanted to identify with the Christian faith, but wasn't actually a saved follower of Jesus Christ. Next question. Do you want to add to that? I was just thinking about Hebrews uh, as well. Like the... In reality, one of the things we have to honestly say is that the, the only way we can talk about uh, assurance of salvation is if someone is persevering in their faith. Like you can't, um, you can't honestly say that my, I, I prayed a prayer when I was five years old, and then, but I've, I'm rejecting all facets of the faith and everything like that. But I'm fine, or, or hold to that. I'm fine. I, I prayed that prayer. I think when we look at Hebrews, the the foundation of assurance of knowing that I'm saved is, is, is the idea of perseverance in your faith. And so to persevere is to, to say that I am staying, with the, staying the course. Mm-hmm. And so that is a, a key part of any discussion around assurance is that if you really can't promise someone, right, uh, say, oh, no problem, that they're not with with Christ, you're not following Christ. You really have to say you preach the gospel to them as if you don't. You, we're not God. We don't know if they're saved or not. So you preach the gospel to someone. Mm-hmm. You say you, if they haven't, if they're away from Christ right now, you say this is the assurance. If you're if you're staying with your faith, the best way to understand if someone is saved is by evidence of a changed life. Right? The scriptures teach it that way, because generally, it's some of the way it's been teached is like. Stand and sign this paper and commit your life to Jesus, right? But in essence, that's a false gospel because you're saying that by you doing this, you've earned your salvation by doing it. Where So the, it's not that Jesus, the object of your faith, is where you're saved, right? Rather than the position of how you did it that saves you. It's the object. It's Christ. And if you've truly been saved, then you'll live a changed life. The Spirit will be right inside of you. You'll be gripped to the core. There's another. This is a huge discussion. We could we could go on. Yeah. So, anyone else right now? Are we? Yeah, sorry. Neil. Yeah, yeah, and generally when, when we look at those examples, um, it's that they'd never truly experienced a conversion. So if you go back to the hermeneutic of those experiences, uh, most commentators would say that they didn't experience a full-on abandonment. They might have been, like, and we, we can, I think, understand this from our understanding of and, under, and being in Christian community for a little while, is that sometimes there are those folks that say, oh, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm in this thing, and there might even be some fruit around that, and sometimes we go, God, there was fruit, but yet... Um, a, a lot of it comes back, though, like, like, to, the, to the beginning of the question of, like, do you, do you take a position of predestined that God chose and foreknew before the foundation of the world, or is it free will that we all decide afterwards? And it really comes down to that question. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, we would, what we'll say here at the church is we will probably teach from a more reformed perspective, which is a predestined perspective. 
you're welcome to be here if you hold a more free will position. Like, there will be things that you'll disagree with, but we also believe that we are, are open to having people of different beliefs and positions here. Um, but it's, it's our conviction more so uh, in the way that we read the scriptures. I think one of the things that I, I've come to a place, though, is, um, is, a, is a healthy humility in the sense of saying that um, I think both human responsibility and God's sovereignty are taught in Scripture. I think we can honestly say that I wake up, and my, that's our experience. We wake up in the morning, and we have human choices that I think most of us would say are real choices. We're not, um, we're not kind of robots. And yet, at the same time, you can't avoid these, this idea of uh, that God's sovereign over all things. And, and if all things, it means little things and the big things. And how this works out completely can, is a bit of a mystery in how does human responsibility and God's sovereignty coexist completely in this world. And I'm comfortable living as a pastor in the sense of uh, a little bit of mystery on how God makes that completely happen together. And, and I, I would say I'd speak that honestly with people about, I don't think that is unfaithful to, to either side of scripture. So I can understand why someone would lean in one direction towards more of the understanding of free will. But I would say that you can live in a world where it's, is it, is it a cop-out? You could be accused of that. Or you could say that, you know, there are some things in Scripture on how God makes it, hap- how those things come together, that there is a level of mystery about how God brings things together. I don't think it's just salvation. I think God does things in mysterious ways. And, and so that's what, there are some things that I would say uh, about living in the mystery of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Um, so I don't know if that helps at all, uh, where somebody's struggling with it. Okay. Mm-hmm. How did to uh, discern God's will from our own desires, especially if our desires appear to align with God's will? The second part of that is a, is a huge part that God will never ask you to uh, do something that is not in alignment with his word. And so uh, that's, the fu- that's the foundation to start with. Like God's word is faithful. God's word is true. And, it's, and, it's, and God is not inconsistent in, in his uh, application of that. So if we were to, to look at that, I would say the first off, I would say that is the second part is that uh, if, if your will, it, it contradicts scripture in any way, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the stop sign. Okay, that's the place to start. So that's, that's just one side of it, though. Yeah, a lo- there's a lot of conversation that happens around, what's the will of God? Like, what's this line that he has for me? And when you look at the scriptures, the scriptures actually talk very little about the will of God as being this line that you're following, the will of God being about your character. So let's go to Romans uh, 12, verse 2, for example. It's, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But he starts with like, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing. So he's really talking about that the will of God is for you to renew your mind, not to not be conformed to this world. So God's desire and his will over your life is that you become more like Jesus. 
And if you're becoming more like Jesus, then you'll understand about decisions that you make. My dad said to me once, he said, Matt, I believe the will of God is less about this line that he has and, and more about me and the daily decisions that I'm making for him. You don't necessarily know what t- tomorrow has or the next day has for you. But you have today, and as the scriptures say, like, do not be worried about tomorrow. Be worried about today. And in today, are you focused on honoring Jesus, loving the Lord, turning your life over to him, dying to yourself, taking up your cross, following him daily? Hmm. Um, that's the Lord's will for you, is that you become more like Christ. I think, too, one of the things that we, just to say that when you read Scripture, you have to ask the question is that there's two meanings of God's will in Scripture. There's God's moral will. God's moral will is, is, is completely clear. Uh, well, okay. Let's, uh, God's moral will, I believe, is clearly laid out in Scripture. God's sovereign will in, our, in each of our lives in, in those things are not clearly laid out in Scripture. You don't know the, who you're supposed to marry for instance, according to scripture. But you can know that morally, that God's moral will is that uh, you would, a believer would marry another believer. And so if you would to say, God, if someone said to me, God wants me to marry, I'm a follower of Christ, but God wants me to marry this unbeliever. Okay. I can, I can say, sorry, I, I don't, that's not true. Because God's moral uh, now, people have done it. <laughs> people have missionary dated and everything like that. But that doesn't mean that that's God's desire. That's God's moral will for us. And so when we ask the question, when you read the scripture about God's will, you have to ask the question, are we talking about God's moral will, his, his desire for this world to conform to, the, to, to his teaching and the, uh, what's right? And true, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's the God's sovereign will, which is God's plans for all of history and in right down to our individual lives. So I heard, I think I interrupted that question there. I'd, I'd like to, if we can, I want to be fair to the people that are, have texted in questions. Um, I think it's good that we're responding to things, but then we'll spend a lot more time on one question than getting to lots of them. So let's have uh, individual conversations about, about some, some other things that come up afterwards. Just because I know that there's probably lots of questions and I don't want to spend. Does that make sense? Sure. All right. Because that's another one you could spend like an entire thing talking yeah. about, right? If you want to come up and yeah. talk to us after, that'd be great. What does the scripture refer to or mean by the unforgivable sin? No tag alone? No. <laughs> Blaspheming the name of Jesus? Yeah. I think uh, rejection of, of Jesus is the only f- unforgivable sin. That, uh, if we say any sin, even the most horrendous and horrific of sins, is capable of, fall- of coming under uh, the grace of, uh, of God. But that... Uh, God is faithful to his son and to what he did on the cross and the pouring out of his wrath. And so to reject Christ is the, is the unforgivable sin. That- yeah, because I think there's a scriptural reference around blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You have to remember, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one, right? It's like I heard uh, Keller talks about like they're dancing together. There's perpetual dance. They're always encouraging, supporting on the same side. 
And so when you speak, when you try to separate Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into d- different things, you're, the relationship of the Trinity is like, you can't do that. So you're, if you're turning your back on the Holy Spirit or blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you're blaspheming the whole, the whole picture. Oh, nice. James, you want to take that one? Well, I got none of those things. So. <laughs> okay. Um, in the Old Testament, there was commands for the children of Israel not to mark themselves. And the reason that they are given the law in the very beginning is for them to live differently and to be differently than the surrounding nations that mm-hmm. surround them. Yeah. So they're to be God's holy people, a holy nation, so that when the Canaanites, the, uh, the Perizzites, these other fe- people around them, when they're there, they're looking at them and they're saying, wow, those people are like really different. In the scriptures, we have civil law, we have ceremonial law, and we have moral law. Civil law was given to the Israelites. It's how they were to live. Like, it's when you read Deuteronomy Numbers and Leviticus, and you go, what does that have to do with my life now? Very little. Um, you don't very cook, little. cook a young goat in its mother's milk? No, not, ra- not rarely. Rarely. <laughs> Um, so the civil law given to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Then you have ceremonial law, which is given to the Levites to instruct and guide the people of Israel, though it's also just for the, the Israelites. And then you have moral law, which is for all of time. So Ten Commandments, for example, then the things that we find in the New Testament. That does not mean that the Old Testament is like you can throw it out, because much of the New Testament is informed by the Old Testament, but it does instruct us on the storyline of the scriptures and how God's trying to set people apart. So when it comes to the New Testament, um, and we have Jesus, that doesn't mean that like we, you can go do whatever you want with your body. Um, it certainly means that within uh, reason and means. Uh, if my tattoos and piercings are if in the context in which I'm working, like if I'm working in the southern United States, and I have tattoos and piercings, and it's just not helpful to the context of the people that I'm working with there, and everyone that walks in is like, oh, that's terrible. Like, I probably shouldn't get a job there to begin with. Um, so a bit of it is, is contextual, but there's also a, a style to things. Like, why do you do your hair a certain way? Is that okay? You know, like, the scriptures don't flatten, um, or the New Testament, by grace alone, doesn't flatten culture that way. Of other religions that that do in many ways. Yeah, and one of the things that we have to, when we're reading the Bible, we have to understand is that there is culture there. And um, one of the things that I understand as I studied uh, through context and, and everything is that uh, piercings and tattoos had very different meanings in in certain cultures. That um, in the time of the Bible, that a certain uh, piercing or tattoo uh, could indicate that I'm a part of a cult of a certain deity. I could be a part of a, I'd be worshiping a particular God. If I was a temple prostitute, I would, uh, I'd have a certain look so that I was recognizable. And so uh, that is one of the things that when you, when we see uh, something about tattoos and piercings, what it meant then is very different than what tattoos and piercings mean today. And so uh, we, it doesn't mean that we can't ask the question, but it does mean we have to read through that with, with proper uh, cultural context of understanding that um, if you had a certain earring or a certain tattoo, you were identifying and saying, I am a part of this community. I'm a part of worshiping this deity, and I practice uh, sexual promiscuity in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So I think that's helpful to think about why, um, why it's not as easy as like 
black and white, don't tattoo, don't pierce, that kind of thing. It means, it means very different things today. Uh, no one would say that uh, a certain uh, set of earrings today mean that you're a part of a prostitution ring or something like that, right? It's just, that's not the way it works. So There is probably something to say about, like, at the base level, is tattoos and piercings okay? Yes, of course. I would say, though, the what you get tattooed on your body, though, no. we would say, no, like, it should represent as a follower of Jesus. Like, I'm not going yeah. to stick a tattooed on me, you know, like, that would be terrible. Yeah. That's probably, that's, a, that's our extremism, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> that's an extremism. Sometimes I live that way. Yeah, I'm you're like, sorry. way to jump to the extreme, right? <laughs> okay, keep going. If heaven will be perfect and there will be no sin, pain, hurt, why didn't God create the world and people that way in the first place? He did. Um, he did uh, bring, create, um, create this world perfect. That's what uh, the scriptures teach us, uh, that there's with, it's without sin. Uh, it, w- it wasn't until the act of rebellion of Adam and Eve uh, that sin entered the world through a fall. Um, could he have created this world without um, could he have created this world without the the tree that of temptation there um, that 's a question that is far above my pay grade in terms of <laughs> he, he absolutely could have, but God chose to do his plan in this way and and so i that one I, I would struggle to give really a, an answer to on why he chose to do it this way. Yeah, I think beneath the level of this question, there's a bit of like God blame. I'm not trying to put it pinpoint perfectly on that, but like we mess stuff up, right? Like there's, there's no way to deny that. Like we are broken human beings and we sinned against God. We sin against God all the time. So you could also ask the question, why doesn't God, like, could create it one way, which he did. He gave us the opportunity to choose around a limited will, in my perspective. But then when we sinned, he could have said, well, you messed it up, see you later. I'm done with you. Wasn't that the good news of the gospel? That he says, no, I'm pursuing you. And then you follow in the storyline of the, New Te- or the Old Testament. And again and again and again, the children of Israel sin. And God could have said, well, I'm done with you. But he doesn't. He pursues them again. And then he says, I'm going to send you a Savior. So then we get Jesus. And as soon as Jesus resurrected, does everyone become perfect? No. We continue to sin. But what does God do again? Pursues us again. He doesn't have to. He wants to. Thanks be to God for that. And the only reason that you're alive today, you have breath today, that you're living in North America today. Like, think about this. You didn't choose where you were born. Become a middle-class white guy in Canada. The top 5% wealthiest people in the world. And I complain about some of the things that are going on in my life. Who am I to complain? I have an incredible life. God will restore it all. And in the process, he's magnifying his son. Right? Like all of life is about the glory of Jesus. So in this process of this middle world that we live in, the in-between and not yet, what's the purpose of it? That God will be glorified. 
We need to trust him in that. How do you choose to be baptized? How do you decide when and where? Well, two weeks from now at John McRae <laughs> Public That's School, 10.30 a.m., we will have a tank. Um, I, I, let's talk about maybe a little bit about, it's important, I think, to be baptized in front of your church community. Um, there are folks that go off to, you know, Israel, like Israel. Matt Balaban, like Jordan River, neat. Um, but like being in front of your church community is, is powerful. It's saying to the people that are then going to hold you accountable that, hey, like, I'm identifying with Jesus. Now I need you to hold me accountable to this decision that I'm making. Awesome. So, so good. And so you choose to be baptized after you've been saved. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's the natural first thing of like, I love Jesus. I want all of what Jesus is to be done in my life. He said to be baptized. Should get dunked. Right? Like it's the natural kind of next step. So how do you choose? If you want to follow Jesus, baptism is next. I think the uh, thing that we've done a disservice to is not tied uh, baptism as closely to... We've, for the, the fear of sometimes of wanting people to understand everything. We've postponed baptism uh, for them to come to a certain level of maturity. I don't know if anyone's been sort of... But there's... And those are, that's valuable that people understand what they're doing. But sometimes we've, at the detriment of what I would say Scripture teaches, is that it is a first step uh, piece of the, of the puzzle. Um, so when Peter asks, uh, when he preaches this powerful sermon, right? He, he preaches this incredible sermon to the people who have rejected and basically the ones who killed Jesus, they are cut to the heart. They are convicted. And he, they ask, How do I, what must I do to be saved? And he, say, and he says, you must repent. So it's a, it's a salvation, a turning in a completely different direction. But it's also, then he says, repent and be baptized. And it is, uh, it is uh, saying, you are, you are turning and walking in this new direction. And baptism is the picture of walking in that new direction. And so when we would say to most people is that um, you don't postpone it till you are spiritually mature in your life, but that it actually is a first step occurrence. And so I think we're starting to recapture that a little bit better, trying to explain baptism very clearly, but not trying to put it off um, where, um, and this is a tricky with children, is uh, discerning children of believing parents, is discerning when a, when a child is um, ready and so this is, uh, this is often we, we sit down with a child and just make sure that they really understand it, but not saying you can't have faith, child, because that's not what Jesus says. He invites children to come to him. And so f- the faith of our children is something to be celebrated. And it's appropriate if a child is, is, is ready, understands the gospel, and uh, their desire is that, that we not hold it back from them either. So I don't know if that's, that's probably... Well, maybe one more. Uh, if you're baptized as a teen and then walked away from the church and returned as an adult, should be baptized again. No, no. You're always a child of the Father. Just because you walked away doesn't mean you weren't. And I, I, I think we need to like really grasp this for a second because it goes back to our question of salvation in the first place. Like, Isn't it an incredibly incredible thing that we are eternally secure? 
like rather than kind of going, well, that doesn't seem fair because they're not following Jesus anymore. Like, get over yourself. The fact that you're asking whether it's fair or not is calling to question the maker of everything. Like so, I heard someone say once, rarely do we ask why one child is adopted and not another because we're so excited celebrating in the adoption of the child. Right? Like, for Amanda and Paul, we're not asking the questions of the other hundred over there. Right? We're celebrating the one. I think it's the same when we talk about our adoption to the Father, is we're celebrating our adoption. Right? If you're moved by their story and the Spirit is saying, you need to adopt, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Get out and share the message of the good news of the gospel. Right? So. The fact that my salvation is not of my own accord, praise be to God, because I couldn't have gotten it on my own. And then I'm thankful that I am secure in Him. That, you know, if I, like, then we've got to start drawing lines. Like, okay, so which sin in my life is like the worst one? Because if I do that one, then I'm no longer saved. Right? It's, it's kind of like if I do enough good things, I can get into heaven. Who draws that line? So let's rest in the fact that thanks be to Jesus that he has saved us. That we are his. And if we turn, and we truly did experience the salvation in the first place, that he's not going to say, I'm done with you. Like I have a sister right now that is not following after the Lord. And she um, had an experience, I believe, that was very much like she used to go out for coffee dates with Jesus and she would literally write down things that God was telling her. Like, I got a letter from her once from God where she said, Matt, I want you to have this letter that I got from God for you. And that was, like, really legit. Like, I read that and was like, holy smokes. Like, that wouldn't have been you. (laughs) No offense. That was clearly God. And now she's at a place in her life where she's saying, "I I don't know what I believe. I mean, I think there is something for sure. I, I, I believe those experiences were legitimate, but... So do I sit and go, well, shoot, you're not saved anymore. Or do I trust in the fact that that God is a loving father and that by his grace, when she was saved then, back then, that she's also still saved now? I don't know. But I I I believe that that we are eternally secure, and I'm thankful so much to Jesus for that. And you probably have people in your own life that are maybe going through something like that. And so when the rubber meets the road of your theology around grace and who does what and when and where, if he did it, then he's still faithful, he's still got us, and we're still his children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these have been heavy questions. In many ways, I think I was naive to what could have been asked. But God, I thank you for these questions. I pray that the words of James and I's mouth would have glorified you. I pray, Lord, that if there has been anything we've heard this morning that maybe we have a bad taste in our mouth about, that we would reach out to, people would reach out to James and I to have those conversations. God, this might not have been a a divisive morning, but a unifying morning around Jesus and his grace and the gospel and the good news that we are saved. And I pray that we would celebrate this good news together. I thank you, God, that we have the opportunity to be an expression of heaven on earth here. And God, we do pray in Guelph as it is in heaven. 
And God, we pray that there would be hundreds of people that would come to know you, Jesus. God, I'm, not, I'm just going to be honest. I'm not comfortable just sitting here with the same group of people for the next 20 years. God, because I believe that there's this holy discontent of God that this message needs to go to others. And God, if the disciples had been comfortable with that first 11, and then 70, God, that we wouldn't even be sitting here. So God, may you be raising us up as laborers. May you give us boldness to share. And thank you, God, that you include us in the process. What an incredible opportunity we have been given. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing. You know, singing is responding to God for the gracious things that he has done in our life. So when you sing, it's not just, well, I'm not a very good singer. It's, no, but I can't help but sing because of this Jesus. So let's stand and sing to our Savior.